Good morning. A good day. Turn, if you would, to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're continuing our study in the letters uh, to the Thessalonians. These are two of the earliest epistles, probably just uh, Galatians and, and James before these two. And we're going to read 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 uh, to get us started. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. Let's pray. Father, we do just uh, come into your presence. We're thankful for this letter. We pray as we look into it over the next several weeks that you would use it to challenge our hearts, that you would use it to equip us uh, for sharing the wonderful uh, message of your son. And so we ask for your blessing as we meet together in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians was probably only written two or three months after the first letter. Paul had received some, some news from Thessalonica. Some of it was good, some of it was bad. But uh, he's writing this letter to, to meet some needs. Uh, first of all, there was uh, continuing, and, and some commentators believe perhaps uh, even greater persecution than they had been suffering already uh, out of chapter 1. There's some indication that it, it had intensified. Uh, secondly, there was some false teaching concerning the day of the Lord. If you remember from chapter 5, the day of the Lord is that, that time period of the end times after the rapture of the church that goes all the way through uh, the tribulation, all the way through the millennium uh, to when the earth uh, is burned up by fire and God creates a new heaven and new earth. And this false teaching concerning the day of the Lord had entered the church causing uh, a great deal of confusion. Some thought that the day of the Lord had already begun and they were living in the tribulation period. You might say, well, where did they get that idea? Well, just slip over to chapter 2, verse 2. Since I'm going to speak on this next week, I won't be stealing any thunder from anyone else. <clears throat> verse 2 of chapter 2, that you be not quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So there were a number of sources of, of this false teaching. Uh, there was a prophecy. Uh, back then, they didn't have the New Testament, and so God gave the gift of prophecy to the church, and men would stand up and say, I have a message from the Lord. And they would speak, and the church was to judge that. And apparently someone had stood up and said, listen, we're, we're in the tribulation. The day of the Lord has come. And, and they had this... this uh, false prophetic word. And then there was a message. Some people came with a report. Hey, we've heard this teaching. Uh, perhaps someone was teaching it in small groups or something. We heard this teaching that we're actually living during the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord has come. And, uh, and then he, he refers to a letter as if from us. Uh, the church may have received a letter allegedly from Paul. Notice in chapter 3, verse 17, 
Paul says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write, which gives some credence. Paul's saying, here's how you know when you get a real letter from me, uh, and here's what will, it will look like. And so uh, there was a number of things that had come in uh, that made it look authoritative. And the Thessalonian church was shaken by this, and, and there was a great deal of confusion uh, the result was that some of the young believers were shaken, confused. Some had, in misplaced zeal, quit their jobs in the expectation of Christ's uh, immediate return. Both of the Thessalonian epistles deal with the major themes of Christ's coming and Christian suffering. And so this message is going to be about prophetic encouragement in suffering. You know, the Lord Jesus had promised that he was coming back in the upper room. He promised his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you, that where you are, there, you, uh, where I am, there you may be also. And, and then he said, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. The Lord Jesus said, listen, I'm coming back. I'm coming back. In Matthew 24, the disciples, when he was on Mount Olivet, they came to him and they said, how will we know when the end times are, the sign of your coming, how will we know these things? And as part of that, the Lord Jesus said to them, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory." The scriptures, especially the Thessalonian epistles, make it clear that the return of Christ happens in, in two stages. There is the rapture. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 and 18, uh, Paul gives some new truth on that. It will be hidden from the world. Christ will come to the air. This coming is for the saints, those who have trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior, uh, both those who have died and those who are alive at that moment. There will be no sign that precedes the rapture, and it's followed by the judgment seat of Christ, where believers will receive their rewards for their life and service for Christ. And it's followed by a celebration in heaven called the marriage of the Lamb, Revelation 19, verses 7 and 8. The revelation that we're going to talk about this morning uh, will be publicly seen. The Lord will come to the Mount of Olives. The saints will be with him. Many signs will precede the revelation. It will be followed by the judgment of the nations and Christ's coronation as king of kings on earth. The passage we're going to talk about this morning is hard. It's not hard to interpret. It has hard truths. And so uh, the, the outline for the passage is, is very, very simple. Praise, uh, salutation or greeting, uh, verses 1 and 2. Praise, verses 3 and 4. Prophetic teaching, uh, verses 5 through 10. Prayer, verses 11 to 12. So let's begin with the salutation. And I just want to point out a few things that are different from the first letter. Verse 1, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here it says not the Father as it did in 1 Thessalonians. It says our Father. And Paul is trying to convey as he will in this passage the heart of God towards his people. 
They're in a terrible time of suffering. He's going to talk about a terrible time of judgment that's coming. But he says, listen, we are safe in the hands of our Father, this personal relationship we have with God. And in verse 2, he says, grace to you in peace. Uh, And that's what he said in 1 Thessalonians. But here he adds, from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. This grace that God wants you to exercise your life in. You're struggling through persecution. God wants you in persecution to be gracious. It's hard to do that. Hard to do that when you're suffering. And he says, I want you to have peace. And this is not found in yourself. This comes, its source is from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where you find the grace to turn the other cheek. That's where you find the grace to bless those who curse you. That's where you find the peace when possessions are being taken away, when people are being imprisoned. You find it in the sovereignty of God, in the fatherhood of God, in the care of the Lord Jesus. He comes to the next section, uh, uh, praise and thanksgiving. He says, verse 3, as we read, we ought always to give thanks for you. This is the only thanksgiving in Paul's epistle where he uses the word ought. King James Version says bound. It has the idea of owing a debt. Paul felt he owed God a lasting obligation because of his experience with the Thessalonians believers. Isn't that an amazing thing? He spent some time with the Thessalonians believers, and he says, I owe it to God to be thanking him because I got to be amongst you. That's how it ought to be here. Okay? And he's going to talk about what it takes to have that kind of place. But he says, you know, I I just thank God uh, for you. And then he goes on and he says, Uh, as is only fitting. He gave thanks to God for them, and it was only fitting or proper because of their spiritual condition. One writer says, Paul never forgot what they'd been like in their pre-Christian days and never forgot to thank God for what God had achieved in them. He gave thanks for changed lives. He gave thanks for lives that went from anger and bitterness to love. He gave thanks for people who demonstrated uh, for others in the congregation the love of the Lord Jesus. And that's what he wants. He wants us to to have this kind of lifestyle. And so he points out uh, a few of these things that he was excited about. First, he says, your faith is greatly enlarged. Paul uses a verb here only found here in the New Testament. The verb means to grow or increase. Uh, That word's found a number of places, but it has the preposition hyper. When I was growing up, that was a a term that people used. You're awful hyper. Well, he's using it here. He says, your faith has just abounded. It's it's hyper. It's way beyond what, what people would expect. It's unusually large. It's been increased by leaps and bounds. And then he says, um, and the love of each one of you towards another grows even greater. Notice he says, each one of you. 
is I'm not talking just about a few. In your congregation, everybody shares in this, that your care for one another. Uh, and again, he uses a word that has the idea of abounding, increasing abundantly. Um, both of these verbs are in the first place in, in the sentence. And that's the place of emphasis. He says, I, here's what I'm, I'm praising God for. You're just hyper-increasing your faith. And you're just abounding your love to one another. In fact, that was the very thing he, this, about their love, is the very thing he prayed for in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. As you're going through persecution, you don't usually grow greatly in love when you're being persecuted, when you're under stress. And he says, in this condition, I'm praying that you really do. Your love it increases and expands. And now he writes and he says, we're just so thankful for you because you've responded well and your love has increased. And then he says in verse four, therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God. Paul usually was kind of reticent about lavishing praise. But he says, you know, as we see what's going on up there in, in Thessalonica, as we hear your response, we just find ourselves speaking proudly of you to other churches, holding you up as an example. Because we recognize this is an amazing work of God. And, and the specific area uh, that he touches on here is for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. Persecution, uh, <clears throat> um, the word uh, persecution has the idea of being pursued. It speaks of the experience they're going through. Afflictions has the idea of the interior anguish you feel as you face some of these things. And he says, we know you're under pressure you're being pursued, and we know you're, you're just overwhelmed by, by these feelings of, of what you're facing. But you've come through with, with perseverance and trusting God in the midst of all of this. You know, Paul, in his first epistle, and almost in all of his epistles, he speaks of faith, hope, and love. And some commentators say, you notice he speaks of faith and love, but he doesn't speak of hope here. But he does speak of perseverance. In 1 Thessalonians 1.3, it was the work of faith, the labor of love, and the perseverance of hope. So he is implying uh, hope, but one commentator said, perhaps Paul does not use the word hope here because of the false interpretation of the Christian hope that was causing confusion in the church, and for that he could not give thanks. But the Thessalonians were showing heroic endurance in all their persecutions and painful experiences. And this endurance, he says, flows from their, the reality of their faith and showed the reality of their faith. They both trusted God and that gave them the endurance and then it showed to others that their faith was genuine and Paul was proud of this. So for just a moment, we want to stop since we're talking about prophetic encouragement in sufferings, we want to talk about uh, 
how that reflects uh, in this passage, God's purposes in Christian suffering. We go through hardships. We go through trials. It might be financial. It might be health. It might be family. It might be uh, persecution. Uh, there's just a, a number of hardships. But when we go through hardship and we trust God in the midst of it, things happen. And so he talked about the testing of their faith producing endurance, just like he wrote about in Romans 5, 3, and James wrote about in James chapter uh, 1, verses 3 and 4. Because endurance produces spiritual growth in your life. And the Thessalonians' faith was greatly enlarged. You want to grow? Expect trials. Expect pressures. You talk to someone who's doing a marathon. Hey, I'm running a, uh, a mile every day. Great. When are you going to start running five? Because running a mile every day won't prepare you for a marathon. And when you're running five every day or every other day, then they say, hey, now boost it up to ten. Why? Because that endurance gives you the ability to face something bigger. And Paul recognizes that, that their trials and their proper response to them is causing growth in their own personal relationship with God. Secondly, it equips and makes empathetic so that one is able to minister to others. He talked about the Thessalonians' love towards one another uh, growing greater. In 1 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 1.4, it talks about when we go through tough times and God comforts or encourages us, it gives us the ability to encourage others. No one can empathize with a person going through cancer than another person who's been through cancer. You and I can say, I'm sorry, I know this is hard. We cannot empathize on that level. And God takes his people through things so it puts others on their radar. They see them. Some of us will walk right by. I hear you have that. I'm sorry. But they really know what it's like. And they're on their radar. They're empathetic. I know a lady in Kansas, and she was found to have a serious form of cancer. And so every few days she had to go in and sit in a room where they put chemo in her. And one day she was sitting in that room, and, and she was trusting God through this. And she looked around the room and she saw a lot of hopeless faces. And she said, God's given me a door of opportunity. And she began to talk to them. How are you doing? How is it going through this? And shared her own experience, but shared how Christ helped her. And she led several of those ladies to the Lord. It was a door of opportunity she never would have had without going through the hardship. And so God uses this, as he did with the Thessalonians, to help them become empathetic and equip them. Number three, it is an encouragement to other believers. Paul held them up as an example to other churches. 1 Peter 5, verse 9 Paul talks about resisting Satan. He says, but resist him, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. 
When other Christians suffer and we see it and we see their proper response, it should be an encouragement to us when we face ours. Knowing that they've gone through it, they've been faithful, and God will give us the same grace and help. And then number four, it is a warning to those outside of Christ. Philippians 1, 28 and 29 says, In no ways alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them. When we show our faith and we go through hardship, particularly persecution, it is a warning to those who are persecuting us that what we have is real, and if what we have is real, it says tough times are coming for them. And that's really the lead-in to, to our next point, that our suffering is a warning to those outside of Christ, that there is prophetic encouragement for us in, in suffering. And so let's take a look at this, verse 5. This is the plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. This word plain indication, manifest token, I think King James says, really is a word that means evidence. It's only used here in the New Testament. It's an evidence that while God's allowing this, it's pointing forward to a time of relief in the future, and, and it's telling the Christians, you need to keep seeking God's grace to, to endure. But it's, it's an evidence, as, as he says, uh, of God's righteous judgment that's coming. And you're going to be considered worthy um, of the kingdom of God. The suffering doesn't make them worthy of the kingdom of God, just like baptism doesn't save. But baptism is an outward sign that says, hey, this person says he's received Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ went into death, taking his sin, and came out to newness of life, and I was in Christ when he died. He died for my sins. When he rose again from the dead, he rose to give me newness of life. And this is a picture of what I received when, when I trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior. When a believer goes through suffering, trusting God, the reality shown in their life by their faith, by their love, by their perseverance, shows that they're, they're the people that are going to make up the kingdom of God. And it points their, the finger at, at the persecutor. And it says, you're not that people. What are you going to do? And so there's this encouragement for believers. This time that's coming is a time of reward. And so he talks about that. Um, he says... Um, this is a evidence of God's righteous judgment, so you'll be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted as well to us. When Jesus comes in glory, it'll be a time of public reward for believers. Their suffering did not make them worthy of heaven, their faith in the work of Christ on the cross for their sins did that. 
they are declared because of the work of Christ to be worthy of heaven and their suffering for Christ's sake demonstrates their worthiness. As, as, as we'll see later, God is going to show forth all the glories of his church, the changes God made in their lives and all the things that were done for the kingdom of God, even against opposition. But it's also a time of justice. God will repay with affliction those who afflict you. You know, our world cannot guarantee justice. I think of policemen who have promised families we'll get this guy and they never do. It's not their fault. The criminal gets away with it. Or they get him in court and he gets off on a, on a technicality. Or war criminals where, where nations said, listen, we're going to bring you in and we'll bring you to justice. And they know it'll never happen. They can do it with impunity. We don't have justice in this world because the world cannot, but there's coming a judge who can. And so he says, listen, it's going to be a time of absolute justice. And Jesus, who is described as the judge of the living and the dead, will guarantee that none will escape. Not even death can wipe the slate clean. And notice it's God's righteous judgment. The emphasis is that God will balance the scales of justice, that he will, he will bring uh, evil into judgment and he'll reward good. And so he says, listen, you're being persecuted. You understand God will deal with that. And so he writes to the Romans in Romans chapter 12, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God for it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay the Lord, says the Lord. But if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There's this incentive even though they're mistreating you, even though you're per being persecuted, don't give in to the desire for revenge. Let God's justice deal with it. God will deal with it. You overcome evil with good. You act in such a way as to show forth the kingdom of God because it's also a time of relief. And so he says, and to give relief to you who are afflicted. There'll come a day when there'll be a relaxing of the hardship and suffering for believers forever. Well, when will this time of public reward, justice, and relief be? It'll be at the revealing of the Lord, verse 5. No, I'm sorry, verse 7. And to give relief to you who are afflicted as well to us, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. You know, during the Lord's life, he was veiled. You didn't see his absolute glory. But now the veil's taken away. And there's three descriptions of this judge uh, from heaven. The first is his absolute power. He's from heaven. There's no one who can overrule his judgment. He's the judge from the highest court, the throne of God. His absolute power is on display as he comes with the armies of heaven. Notice he says mighty angels. 
I mean, the weakest angel in heaven could defeat, defeat all the armies of earth. What in the world are you going to do against the mighty angels of God? No, he comes with absolute power. Nothing can withhold his judgment. And then in flaming fire, this is his absolute holiness. Revelation 1.14, his eyes were like a flame of fire. Nothing's hidden from his sight. Ezekiel 1, 26 to 27, Ezekiel saw a throne on which was one with the appearance of a man. His upper body was like glowing metal that looked like fire all around within it. His lower body was like something like fire. His absolute holiness. He sees every sin. He knows the motivation of every heart. And he guarantees the guilty will never escape. So who are the ones who are being judged? Notice what he says. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. These are the ones who are going to be punished. Two groups are named, those that do not know God. That's a description Paul regularly uses for the Gentiles. It's those who are ignorant of God. Romans 1, 18 to 32 says, God has revealed himself through creation and mankind's conscience, but these are those who refuse to acknowledge the truth. The second group are those who have heard the gospel message of salvation from sin through faith in Christ and have rejected it. And this, guilt, this group's guilt is greater because of the privilege given them. And so there's two groups. There's those who, who rejected God's statement. They've never heard the gospel. But they've rejected God's statement of his existence and his power. They've rejected his, the conscience he's given them about sin and their need uh, of a savior. And then there's those who have heard the message of salvation. What will they face? Verse 9, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. This isn't God's first choice. I was just reading this week in Ezekiel 33, verse 11. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather the wicked should turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die? That's the heart of God. He's not willing that any should perish, that all should come to knowledge of the truth. But those who reject him will face the wrath of God. This is not temporary. There's no such thing as purgatory. Hebrews 1.3 says the only purification of sins was done by Jesus Christ. It's not annihilation ceasing to be. This is eternal conscience punishment. See, people are not going to change. It's interesting if you think about the rich man and Lazarus. When the rich man went to to um, Hades, the place of waiting for the, the unsaved dead before they see the judgment seat of Christ and, and the lake of fire, he never changes. He says to Abraham, 
send Lazarus. He still thinks Lazarus is some peon that he can order around that, that has no value. Send him to give me a drop of water. No, it can't be done, this great golf fix. Well, then send him to my brothers. See, he's still the same arrogant person he was in this life. They're not going to change. And so their judgment is forever. It's described with two more descriptions. Away from the presence of the Lord. In God's presence there are pleasures. Psalm 1611. Thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. It's the place of light. 1 Timothy 6.16. So they're going to be banished to a place of pain and darkness. And they're banished from the glory of his power, forever denied God's help. They are going to be alone, in the dark, in pain, forever. That's hard. I have a good friend who really wants to believe desperately in annihilation, that when people are cast in the lake of fire, they'll be burned up, their consciousness will end. But at the beginning of the millennium, the false prophet and the beast, two humans, are thrown into the lake of fire. And at the end of the millennium, it says they're still there, suffering. God's made us to be uh, creatures of his forever. And if we reject him, we're going to suffer eternal judgment. If there's somebody here and you don't know if death were to knock on your door today, where are you going to spend eternity? You need to know. And the only place that's safe from the wrath of God is in the person of Jesus Christ. God is just. And if you've heard the message of salvation, it puts you in that second category worthy of even more judgment. You know, the Bible talks about mockers in the last days coming, and uh, <clears throat> this is one of the ones uh, I like. Um, it's by Richard Dawkins, one of the leading atheists of our day. He says, believers are a religious constituency whose grip on reality is so tenuous that they expect to be raptured up to heaven, leaving their clothes as empty as their minds. You should pray for Richard Dawkins. God's desire is that people come to faith. Notice he's not, he's not really mocking us. He's mocking the promise of God. And the Lord Jesus says, listen, I'm coming. I'm coming for those who trust me. Even during the tribulation period, he remembers mercy and judgment. In Revelation 7, there's a huge, uh, innumerable host who come to faith out of the tribulation period. God is willing to save people. But when the Lord Jesus comes back the second time, it's judgment. Permanent judgment. And so Paul writes to these believers and, and they're in the power of, of these persecutors. Verse 10, 
when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who believe. He says he's going to be glorified in his saints. The believers in Christ are going to be vindicated. All the blessings brought by them to the world, missionaries, schools, orphanages, hospitals, YMCA, YWCA, leper colonies, all the small individual good deeds, whether it's support for compassion children, the Christmas child shoe boxes, every good deed that, that we heard about this morning that he's preordained that we should walk in them, he's going to display for the world. He says, look, these, these are the people who are worthy of my kingdom. Look how they live their lives. And they're going to be this, and, and he'll reap glory. He'll be glorified in the saints because he changed our lives and helped us to do it. And it'll be a great vindication of the church. He doesn't say who is going to marvel at this. Some suggest angels, some the whole world. Um, but he says, listen, I'm going to be glorified in my saints. I'm going to reveal all the good things that happened and were done by my saints on this planet. And I'll be glorified. And then lastly, sorry, he, he talks about prayer. Um, he says... Here's my prayer for you. To this end, we pray for you always. Our God will count you worthy of his calling. Fulfill every desire for goodness, a work of faith and power, so that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be glorified you and you and him according to the grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I want you, I want for that day, when that day of vindication and glory comes, I pray that you will live lives that will bring Christ's glory in that day. It's going to be the, the amazing day. And you can only do that to live in a way that's consistent with your calling into God's family and his calling you to the destiny he has for you. And how does it work out? By fulfilling every desire for goodness. That God would bring to fulfillment every good purpose of your heart to glorify God. And that every act motivated by their faith, would be accomplished by God's power. So as God moves in your heart to do something, and by faith you step out, even though you don't feel qualified or able to do it, you'll see God come along with his power, and acts will be done. Goodness of heart will be realized. So that the ultimate purpose of these requests was that Christ's glory might be revealed through the lives of the Thessalonian believers, both now and at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He wants it now. So even those that hate the gospel, I hope, I hope Christians just run across Richard uh, Dawkins' path and just love on him. So he has to say, boy, those Christians, even if you mock them, they love you. And God might enlighten his eyes and turn his heart to the Lord Jesus. And he wants you, somebody out there this week, you're going to run across their path and you're going to nudge them towards Christ or away from Christ based on whether you live a life of faith, you live a life of love, you live a life of per perseverance. Let's be those who show them Christ and nudge them towards the Savior. Father, it's hard to speak 
of judgment that's eternal away from your presence. What a hope we have to see the Lord Jesus, to be with him in the place he's gone to prepare for us. And Lord, as we rub shoulders with people who don't have that hope, Lord, let something shine out of our lives that give them a glimmer of the truth of that hope because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.